Chapter Twenty One of A Mating in the Wilds by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chigmok's Story. When Stane set his face to the storm, he knew there was a difficult task before him. He found it even more difficult than he had anticipated. The wind, bitingly cold, drove the snow before it in an almost solid wall. The woods sheltered him somewhat, but fearful of losing himself and so missing what he was seeking, he dared not turn far into it, and was forced to follow the edge of it, that he might not wander from the lake. Time after time he was compelled to halt in the lee of the deadfalls, or shelter behind a tree with his back to the storm, while he recovered his breath. He could see scarcely a yard before him, and more than once he was driven to deviate from the straight course and leave the trees in order to assure himself that he had not wandered from the lakeside. The bitter cold numbed his brain. The driving snow was utterly confusing, and before he reached his objective he had only one thing clear in his mind. Blistering though it was, he must keep his face to the wind. Then he could not go wrong for the storm, sweeping down the lake, came in a direct line from the bluff in the shadow of which the tragedy which he had witnessed had happened. As he progressed slowly, utter exhaustion seemed to overtake him. Bending his head to the blast, he swayed like a drunken man. More than once he stumbled over fallen trees. The impulse to sit and rest almost overcame him. But knowing the danger of such a course, he forced himself to refrain. Once, as he halted in the shelter of a giant fir, his back resting against the trunk, he was conscious of a deadly, delicious languor creeping through his frame, and knowing it for the beginning of the dreaded snow-sleep, which overtakes men in such circumstances, he lurched forward again, though he had not recovered breath. He came to a sudden descent in the trail that he was following. It was made by a small stream that in spring flooded down to the lake, but which now was frozen solid. In the blinding snow-rack he never even saw it, and stepping on air he hurtled down the bank and rolled in a confused heap in the deep snow at the bottom. For a full minute he lay there, out of the wind, and biting snow hail, feeling like a man who had stumbled out of bitter cold to a soft couch in a warm room. A sense of utter contentment stole upon him. For some moments he lost all his grip on realities. Time and circumstances and the object of his quest were forgotten. Visions, momentary but very vivid, crowded upon him, and among them one of a girl whom he had kissed in the face of death. That girl, yes, there was something. His mind asserted itself again. His purpose dominated his wavering faculties, and he staggered to his feet. Helen, he muttered, Helen. He faced the bank of the stream on the other side from that which had caused his downfall. Then he paused. There was something. Twenty seconds passed before he remembered his rifle. It was somewhere in the snow. He must find it. 
for he might yet have need of it. He groped about and presently recovered it. Then, after considering for a moment, instead of ascending to the level, he began to walk downstream, sheltered by the high banks. It was not so cold in the hollow, and though a smother of sand-like particles of snow blew at the level of his head, by stooping he was able to escape the worst of it. His numb faculties began to assert themselves again. The struggle through the deep, soft snow, out of reach of the wind's bitter breath, sent a glow through him. His brain began to work steadily. He could not be far from the bluff now, and the stream would lead him to the lake. How much time had he lost he did not know, and he was in a sweat of fear, lest he should be too late after all. As he struggled on, he did not even wonder what was the meaning of the attack that he had witnessed. One thing only was before his eyes, the vision of the girl he loved, helpless, in the face of unknown dangers. The banks of the stream lowered and opened suddenly. The withering force of the blast struck him, the snow buffeted him, and for a moment he stood, held in his tracks. Then the wind momentarily slackened, and dimly through the driving snow he caught sight of something that loomed shadow-like before him. It was the bluff that he was seeking, and as he moved towards it, the wind broken, grew less boisterous, though a steady stream of fine hard snow swept down upon him from its heights. The snow blanketed everything, and he could see nothing. Then he heard a dog yelp, and stumbled forward in the direction of the sound. A minute later, in the shelter of some high rocks, he saw a campfire, besides which a team of dogs and harness huddled in the snow, anchored there by the sled turned on its side, and by the fire a man crouched and stared into the snow rack. As he visioned them, Stane slipped the rifle from the hollow of his arm, and staggered forward like a drunken man. The man by the fire becoming aware of him, leaped suddenly to his feet. In a twinkling, his rifle was at his shoulder. And through the wild, canorous note of the wind, Stane caught his hail. Hands up, you murderer! Something in the voice struck reminiscently on his ears, and this, as he recognized instantly, was not the hail of a man who had just committed a terrible crime. He dropped his rifle and put up his hands. The man changed his rifle swiftly for a pistol, and began to advance. Two yards away, he stopped. Stain? By? Then Stain recognized him. It was Dandy Anderton, the mounted policeman, and in the relief of the moment he laughed suddenly. You, Dandy! Yes, what in heaven's name is the meaning of it all? Did you see anything, hear the firing? There are two dead men out there in the snow. He jerked his head towards the lake. And there was a dog team, but I lost it in the storm. Do you know anything about it, Stane? I hope that you had no hand in this killing. The questions came tumbling over each other all in one breath, and, as they finished, Stane, still a little breathless, replied, No, I had no hand in that killing. I don't understand it at all, but that sledge we must find it, for to the best of my belief Miss Yardley is on it. 
Miss Yardley? What on earth? It's a long story. I haven't time to explain. We were attacked, and she was carried off. Come along, Dandy, and help me to find her. The policeman shook his head and pointed to the whirling snow. No use, old man. We couldn't find a mountain in that stuff. And we should be mad to try. We don't know which way to look for her. And we should only lose ourselves and die in the cold. But, man, I tell you that, Helen. Helen is in the hands of the good God for the present, my friend. I did not know she was with that sledge. And though I had only a glimpse of it, I will swear that the sledge was empty. There were two men ran out after the firing, cried Stane. I saw them just before the snow came. They were making for the sledge. Perhaps they took Helen. Sit down, Stane, and give me the facts. It's no good thinking of going out in that smother. A man might well stand on Mount Robson and jump for the moon. Sit down and make me wise on the business. Then, if the storm slackens, we can get busy. Stane looked into the smother in front, and reason asserted itself. It was quite true what Anderton said. Nothing whatever could be done for the present. The storm effectually prevented action. To venture from the shelter of the bluff on to the open width of the lake was to be lost, and to be lost in such circumstances met death from cold. Fiercely, as burned the desire to be doing on behalf of his beloved, he was forced to recognize the utter folly of attempting anything for the moment. With a gesture of despair, he swept the snow from a convenient log, and seated himself heavily upon it. The policeman stretched a hand towards a heap of smoldering ashes, where reposed a pan, and pouring some boiling coffee into a tin cup, he handed it the stain. Drink that, Hubert, old man. It'll buck you up. Then you can give me the pegs of this business. Stain began to sip the coffee, and between the heat of the fire and that of the coffee, his blood began to course more freely. All the numbness passed from his brain, and with it passed the sense of despair that had been expressed in his gesture, and a sudden hope came to him. One thing he broke out, if we can't travel, neither can anybody else. Not far at any rate, agreed Anderton, a man might put his back to the storm, but he would soon be jiggered, or he might take to the deep woods, but with a dog team, he wouldn't go far or fast, unless there was a proper trail. That's where they'll make for, as likely as not, said Stane, with another stab at despair. They? Who? Tell me, man, and never bother about the woods. There's a good two hundred miles of them hereabouts. Until we can begin to look for the trail, it's no good worrying. Who are these men? I can't say, answered Stane, but I'll tell you what I know. Vividly and succinctly, he narrated the events that had befallen since the policeman's departure from Chief George's camp on the trail of Chickmunk. Anderton listened carefully. Twice he interrupted. The first was when he heard how the man whom he sought had been at Chief George's camp after all. I guess that, he commented, and after I started on the trail to the barrens, particularly when I found no sign of any camping place 
on what is the natural road for anyone making that way, I swung back yesterday, meaning to surprise Chief George, and rake through his teepees. The second time was when he heard of the white man who had offered the bribe of the guns and blankets for the attack on the cabin, and the kidnapping of the girl. "'Who in thunder can have done that?' he asked. "'I don't know,' answered Stane, and explained the idea that it occurred to him that it was someone desiring to claim the reward offered by Sir James. "'But why should you be killed?' "'Ask the man who ordered it,' answered Stane, with a grim laugh. "'I will when I come up with him. But tell me the rest, old man.' Stane continued his narrative, and when he had finished, Anderton spoke again. "'That solitary man with the team, whom you saw coming down the lake, must have been me.' I turned into the wood a mile or two on the other side of this bluff to camp out of the snow, which I saw was coming. Then it struck me that I should do better on this side, and I worked towards it. I was just on the other side when the shooting began, and I hurried forward, but the snow came and wiped out everything, though I had an impression of a second dog team waiting by the shore as I came round. When I looked for it, I couldn't find it, and then I tumbled on this camp. And as there was nothing else to be done until the snow slackened, I unharnessed. Stane looked round. This would be the place where the man who was to have paid the kidnappers their price waited for them, and paid them in lead, no doubt, with the idea of covering his own tracks completely. That seems likely, agreed Stane. But who? Anderton broke off suddenly and leaped to his feet. Great Christopher, look there. Stane looked swiftly in the direction indicated, and as the veil of snow broke for a moment, caught sight of a huddled form crawling in the snow. What? he began. It's a man. I saw him distinctly, interrupted the policeman. And then as the snow swept down again, he ran from the shelter of the camp. A minute and a half later he staggered back, dragging a man with him. He dropped the man by the fire, poured some coffee into a pannikin, and as the newcomer, with a groan, half raised himself to look round, he held the coffee towards him. "'Here, drink this. It'll do you.' He interrupted himself sharply. Then, in a tone of exultation, he cried, "'Chickmonk!' "'We,' oui, answered the man, "'I am Chickmonk.' And thou? I am the man of the law, answered Anderton, who has been at your heels for weeks. So, answered the half-breed in native speech, with a hopeless gesture, it had been better to have died the snow death, but I shall die before they hang me, for I am hurt. He glanced down at his shoulder as he spoke, and looking closely, the two white men saw that the frozen snow on his furs was stained. Ah, said the policeman, I hadn't noticed that, but we'll have a look at it. He looked at Stane, who was eyeing the half-breed with a savage stare. Then he said sharply, Give me a hand, Stane. We can't let the beggar die, unhelped. However, he may deserve it. He's a godsend anyway, for he can explain your mystery. Besides, it's my duty to get him back to the post, and they wouldn't welcome him dead. Might think I plugged him, you know. 
Together they lifted the man near the fire and examined the injured shoulder. It had been drilled clean through by a bullet. Anderton nodded with satisfaction. Nothing there to kill you, Chipmunk. We'll bandage you up and save you for the law yet. They washed and dressed the wound, made the half-breed as comfortable as they could. Then, as he reposed by the fire, Anderton found the man's pipe, filled it, held a burning stick while he lit it, and when it was drawn nicely, spoke. Now, Chipmunk, you owe me something for all this, you know. Just tell us the meaning of the game you were playing. It can't hurt you to make a clean breast of it, because that other affair that you know of is ample for the needs of the law. You want me to tell? asked the half-breed in English. Yes, we're very curious. My friend here is very anxious to know why he was attacked, and why he was to die while the girl who was with him was carried off. You not know? asked the half-breed. Well, we haven't quite got the rights of it, was the policeman's guarded answer. Then I tell you, his dark eyes turned to Stane. You not know me? No, answered Stane. I never saw you in my life before. But I've seen you. We. Oui. I steal your canoe when you sleep. Great Scott, cried Stane, you. I run from the police, and I have nothing but a gun. When I watch you sleep, I think once I shoot you, but I not know who is in the little tent. And I think maybe they catch me, but I know now it was not so. You know who is in the tent? asked Stane sharply. I find that out the very next morning when I meet a man who asks for the white girl, and have I seen that man before? I had seen him shoot the paddle from the girl's hand. Startled, Stane cried out, You saw him shoot? We, oui, I did not know why he do it, but I think he want the girl to lose herself that he may find her. That I think, but I not tell him that, no. Yet I tell him what I see, and he is afraid, and says he'll tell the mounters he have seen me, if I say he is that man. So I not say it, but all the time he is the man. Then he pay me to take a writing to the camp of the great man of the company. But I not take it, because I'm afraid. Who was this man? asked Stane grimly, as the half-breed paused. I not know, but he is the very same man that was to have paid the price of guns and blankets for the girl that was in the cabin. And who said I was to die? We, oui, he ordered that. I think it is done, and I not care, for already I am the death condemned, and it is but once that I can die. Also, I think, when the price is paid, I will go north to the frozen sea where the mounters come not. But that man, he is one devil. He fix me for bring the girl here, where the price will be paid, and when I come he begin to shoot, because he will not pay the price. He kill Caniff and Ligon, and he would have killed me to save the guns and blankets and the tea and tobacco and dog that he is. Perhaps it was not the price he was saving said Anderton. Perhaps he was afraid that the story would be told, that the mounters would seek out his trail, Chipmunk. By gar, yes, I never think of that, cried the half-breed, 
as if a light had broken on him suddenly. I think only of the price that he saved. What sort of man was he? What did he look like, Chipmunk? He was dark, and what you call handsome. He have sometimes one glance to his eye, and— Ainley, by heaven, cried Stane, in extreme amazement. I know not his name, answered the half-breed, but I think he is of the company. Anderton looked doubtfully at Stane, who suffered no doubt at all. It is Ainley, unquestionably, said Stane, answering the question in his eyes. The description is his, though it is a trifle vague, and the monocle. He affects a monocle still, then? I have seen it, and it is so. He sported it down at Fort Malsom. Anderton nodded, and for a moment looked into the fire, whistling thoughtfully to himself. Then he looked up. One thing, Stane, we need not worry over now, and that is Miss Yardley's welfare. Assuming that Ainley has taken possession of her, no harm is likely to come to her at his hands, whatever may be behind his petty scheme. It will not involve bodily harm to her. We have that assurance in the position he occupies, and the plan he made for her to be brought here alive. No doubt he will be posing as the girl's deliverer. He doesn't know that Chipmunk has survived. He doesn't know that I am here to get Chipmunk's story. And while he can hardly have been unaware of your sledge following the trail of Chipmunk, it is not the least likely that he associates it with you. Probably he is under the idea that it formed part of Chipmunk's outfit. No doubt a little way down the lake he will camp till the storm is over. Then make a beeline for Fort Malsum. We'll get him as easy as eating toast. And when we got him? Duty's duty, answered Anderton with a shrug. I can't enumerate all the charges offhand, but there's enough to kill Mr. Ainley's goose twice over. Lord, what a whirligig life is. I never thought. Hello, who's this? Jean Bernard, or I'm a sinner. Jean Bernard it was and his face lighted with pleasure as he staggered into the camp. "'I fear for you, monsieur,' he said, to Stane, in simple explanation. "'Therefore I come. Bonjour, monsieur Anderton. This is a good meeting on a bad day. But that, surely, that is Chipmunk. And the miss, where is she?' Stane waved a hand towards the lake. "'Somewhere out there, Jean, and still hard to find.' But we find her, monsieur. Have no fear, but that we will find her. When the snow, it stopped. And the ringing confidence in his tone brought new heart to Stane, still beset with fears for Helen. End of chapter 21